Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom, and again, we're going to be talking about the Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, what are the keys to the kingdom? And we talked about that a little bit briefly this morning, that if you go to Matthew 16, there's a particular verse in there that talks about the keys of the kingdom. And it has to do with this whole scenario where you see Jesus asking the apostles, who am I, who am I, who am I? And nobody can answer, or at least nobody answers correctly until Peter answers. And Peter isn't saying that Peter's the only one who knew, but at least Peter was one who answered the question correctly. And he says uh, that you are the Christ, that you are the anointed, the son of the living God, which is, you know, we have an interpretation of words like thou art the Christ. Well, the word Christ simply means anointed, and what he's saying is thou art anointed, the son of the living God, And in the terminology of that day, in the Greek language especially, the Son of God would be the highest ruler in the land. All Israelites, all Israelites considered themselves sons of God, children of God. They were all children of God. That's who they believed themselves to be, the children of God. But of course, the children of God are those who do the will of the Father. And at that particular time, there wasn't a lot of Jews that were doing the will of the Father. There were. Actually, we could say there was a lot, but there wasn't a majority that was doing the will of the Father, which is why when it was put to a democratic vote, they voted to crucify Christ. Now, a lot of people, we know thousands of families joined the Christian movement, uh, 3,000 one day, 2,000 the next. I say movement, but actually they became a part of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was the government of God. And the government of God is both spiritual, but it is also physical. It's not a geographical location. It is what Israel was always meant to be. Israel means a place where God prevails. It wasn't supposed to be a geographical place that God prevails, but wherever you put your foot, this is the promise, Abraham, wherever he puts his foot, the faithful of Abraham, the men who walk by faith instead of by force, the the men who operate out of love rather than making their neighbor bow down to fealty, those are the ones who are Israel. Because in their hearts, God prevails. And, of course, they're going to be the kind of people that would be attending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. They'd be the kind of people that would be very forgiving. They would be the kind of people that would be uh, very generous and kind and uh, remain faithful in marriage and faithful to their families and their sons and daughters would be in order their sons and daughters would not be rebellious and and uh, hating them and spitting at them they would actually care about their parents and if they were their children kept the commandments they would take care of their parents and provide for their parents. They wouldn't expect anybody else to do it. If anybody else wanted to do it, they would say, no, no, I can do it. I can take care of my parents. But that's not what we see most people doing. And uh, what we Now, there are many people who do, or at least try to, but there's also what happened is the world said, no, we'll take care of your parents. Don't you worry about it. 
And so they went another way. They didn't go the way of the kingdom. Now, when we talk about the kingdom, like I said this morning, it's another form of government. It's a different form of government. It's like not like the governments of the world. And so when Peter is recognizing Jesus as the Christ, that he's recognizing him as a king of the kingdom of God that Jesus said he was going to take away from the Pharisees and he was going to appoint it to somebody else. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you. Now we all, we all think, you know, from the beginning John the Baptist kind of knew that Christ was the Christ and other people knew. Now there were some prophets who seemed to know, Simon, or Simeon, he, he seemed to know that, uh, that Christ was a prophet even when he was a little baby. And of course Jesus, uh, uh, Joseph and Mary had some inkling of this. But how does he get to be king? I mean, Rome's occupying Israel at that time. They hadn't really completely conquered it, but they had been invited in to maintain the government of Israel, help them. And then, of course, with protection comes subjection. So, which is a quote, maximum law that I quote all the time in the book Covenants of the Gods. And, of course, that's what was going to eventually happen to the people. The people were going to look to the government to protect them. Protect them from starvation, protect them from destitution, protect them from, you know, starving in the streets with some sort of welfare or free bread or daily ministration. Christ knew that sometimes people need help, so he was creating a government that we could provide that help, but not by force. John the Baptist was going to do it, but not by force. Moses did it, but not by force. Yes, there was a compelled tithe, but it wasn't compelled by a police force. It was compelled by honor. Everyone was expected to give a tithing to the minister of their choice, and then that minister would give a tithing to the minister of his choice. And this way, there was a uh, lifeblood of giving circulating through the entire network of Israel. And they were able to take care of the widows and orphans and needy of society through faith, hope, and charity, which were they were not doing when Christ arrived on the scene. And anybody who studies what the Pharisees were up to at the time, Sadducees too, and even a lot of zealots, they were doing the same thing. They were depending upon a system of social welfare that was based on force. Christ said, no, don't do that. It's not to be that way with Christians. So now he's talking to Peter who's answered this question correctly. And he says, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, a rock. What what he said, thou art a rock. Didn't say that, he's not actually naming him. He's just saying thou art a rock. And it actually means a little rock. Uh, the word that he used there. And upon this little rock, and when he says thou art, it could, he could be referencing the revelation that Simon had manifested. That revelation, by flesh, not by flesh and blood, but by the spirit of my father in you. He says, that's the rock. I'm going to build my church. My called out, because he's, that's the word he uses it. I'm going to establish my called out. My called out has to be called out by a spiritual revelation from the Father to be the ministers of his church. 
And he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what does he mean, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? What's he, what's he talking about? What, how are the gates of hell going to prevail against anything? What, how, what does a gate have to do with anything? Well, the word hell there is the word Hades, and which is often translated hell, but at one time it's translated grave. And if you go back to the Greek word Hades, you know, it has to do with the god of the lower world. The fact is that there were many gods, according to Paul, at that time. Small g gods. Men who say they are gods but are not gods. But still, they play the role of God for society. And they do this usually in relationship to governments. You know, Augustus Caesar claimed to be a god. He claimed to appoint gods. That's actually what his original role was. He says that he was the appointer of gods. Well, appointer of gods was just the ruling judges. In a free society, who's the ruling judge? Well, actually, in a free society, that, that ruling judge is often based on this idea of gods many and gods of a society. That's the ruling judge. That's the judge who decides what is good and what is evil. That's what got us into trouble to begin with, when we tried to decide what was good and evil for ourselves. So where in a free society, who gets to decide what is good and evil? If you choose a man to do it, then you make him a god. He's going to tell you what's good or evil. Now, the way they do it in the United States is you got legislatures deciding what is good or what is evil. And they try to pass laws. And then it has to go to the Senate. And then the Senate doesn't think that that thing is good or evil. Then it doesn't go any farther. But if they sign it, then it can go to the president. And then he gets to decide whether it's good and evil. And if he doesn't think it's good or evil, he can just shove it. And it doesn't get passed unless they get enough votes. But even if he signs it and he says, this is good and we're going to make this law. You still have the Supreme Court who's supposed to decide whether it's good or evil. (laughs) So you have a lot of little checks and balances in the Constitution of the United States as to decide what is good and evil. And then occasionally the people can actually have a vote and say, you know, like in England, Brexit, they decided it was not good to stay in the European Union and they wanted out of the European Union. It took them a long time before they finally, the government, who's supposed to be their public servants, finally gathered up their flag and left the European Union. But I saw they did that the other day. They they took their flag. They shut off the mic of the one guy, I guess. I, this is a story I heard. That he pulled out his British flag and they immediately shut off his mic and they told him to take his flag and go. And that's exactly what he was waiting for them to say. And so all the British guys stood up and left. And then they had somebody march in and get their flag and take it. They were leaving the European Union. Well, they can probably do that. There's going to be some difficulties because they do that. Because Europe is probably going to try not to trade with them and kind of punish them so that everybody else doesn't do it or at least look like they're going to punish them but everybody else is going to want to trade with Great Britain and maybe they'll leave <laughs> so anyway it's hard to say where it's going from here but that's all in man, man-made governments what about God's government how does that work now the what happens when you start to move towards the kingdom of God because that's what we're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness 
So it's something we can actually find if we're supposed to be seeking it. It is in our hearts and our minds because that goes back to who is God. Jesus says, ye also are gods. He said that to his apostles. Well, wait a minute. Are they really gods? No. God is God. Supposedly the apostles were already through revelation listening to God in their hearts and their minds. Now they get to decide what is right and wrong if they walk with God. If they listen to God. So what they're really deciding is not what is right and wrong. They're deciding to listen to God or not to listen to God in their hearts and their minds. And with that governing influence of, because we're supposed to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, so we, in seeking this righteousness, we will put together a group of people that actually can see what is good and what is evil. They're not deciding really on their own. They're recognizing what is good and evil and abiding in that. They're abiding in the will of the Father. Now, I just read a story of a guy, what was his name, Leland uh, Yee. Leland Yee. He's a congressman or something down in, he was actually in, in the city government, and then I think he became a congressman in San Francisco area. And he just got sent to jail for five years for trafficking arms and taking bribes. And that's that's really serious. He's tra- he's Actually, he was a part of a scheme to buy weapons in the Philippines and smuggle them into this country with uh, involving some Chinese mafia guy named Shrimp Boy Chow. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it sounds like it's out of Hollywood. But anyway, the amazing thing, besides the fact that he was taking graft and corruption and bribes and all this kind of stuff, and he just happened to fall into a FBI sting. They weren't looking for him, but when they found him, and they, they eventually charged him. But the reality is, is that that's what he got caught for. But evidently, he had been doing all kinds of things for a long time. But the people kept voting him in, voting him in. Why, why are they doing that? Because they can't tell he's not a good guy. And, you know, he was advocating his, if he, he was giving a speech, for instance, on gun control, he was for taking away all the guns of all the people. Except he was helping mafia people smuggle guns into the United States from another country and taking bribes to make that possible. While he was trying to take all the citizens' guns away. Because the guy was a walking liar. He's a totally liar. A total liar. And the people couldn't see it. You know why? Because the people are liars. And, I, and like Paul, like David, I, in my haste, uh, I could say that all men are liars, and they probably are. But the reality is, what are they? what is the worst lie you lie about? It's you lie about the fact that you say you have faith in Christ. And yet you don't do what he says to do. Peter started to do what he said to do. Now, Peter denied Christ three times. I mean, at this point, he hadn't done that yet. But eventually, he denied Christ three times. Even though he was warned that he would, and he said he wouldn't, he did. Because he was trying to depend upon his own strength. How does the strength of God come? I can tell you, that night and the next few days, Peter did some serious personal soul searching. And you see it. 
in his rhetoric when he comes out uh, after Pentecost that he begins to speak differently about a lot of people. And even though he was now bold in his speech, he was actually very humble in his speech. You know, he was kind of a chauvinist before. And now he's talking about their sisters and, and having great faith and great patience with other people. And, and because the, in order for the kingdom of God to live in your heart and your mind, you've got to make room for it. You've got to stop being judgmental of everybody else. You have to realize that there but by the grace of God, you would be just like them. But God has revealed some things to you. And he, he is waiting and uh, yearning to reveal more to you. But you have to do some of those basics that Christ said to do. Like forgive and give and care about others. And not hold grudges. Not hold resentments. And not live in fear. And, and have faith. All these things he wants you to do. And why? Because he wants to keep you busy? No, because it opens up a place in your heart where the Holy Spirit can come in and reveal things to you. Little things. And, you know, I'll talk about these things. Other people will say things. And you'll say, oh, I get it. I recognize it. But see, in in the very next line uh, of this, you know, again, we're in Matthew uh, 16. But in the very next line, after he says the gates of hell, the gates of death, the gates of the underworld, because see, all the people who follow the ways of Cain, the ways of Nimrod, the ways, you know, the covetous practices of Babylon and, and Egypt, where, that put their neighbor into bondage so that they can live more comfortably. All the people that go that way, they run towards death. That's what it says in Proverbs. They run, they want to have a common purse. And they run towards death. But if you go this other way that Christ is talking about to Peter, then those gates will suck you into death. You won't run towards death. You'll run towards life. You'll have eternal life. And not just, you know, you'll make it to old age at least. (laughs) So, so anyway, that's what he's talking about. And then the very next line, 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That is the keys. Or at least... That's his description of it to Peter and to the rest of the apostles who are all standing there. You know, when he says, I'll give unto thee, not necessarily saying just Peter. Now, if you were to be in a concordance or something and you wanted to see cross-references of that particular line in the Bible, they would take you to statements in Acts where it talks about Peter. You know, coming out after Pentecost and being bold in his speech and everything. And then later they'll talk to you about, you know, later on in Acts where, again, Peter. Because supposedly Peter has the keys to the kingdom. Now, that's a very Catholic doctrine. And so that he supposedly, you know, like if you get to the pearly gates of heaven, 
there he is sitting there with the keys. And they have statues of Peter holding actual keys. But that's a, it's a metaphor. He, there aren't actual keys. It's not quick like a lock set to get into the kingdom of heaven. The key is what you bind on earth is bound in heaven, which is why Christ said, don't take oaths. You know, don't be covetous. Because Peter tells you later on, through covetousness, you'll be made merchandise. You'll be bound in a system where you will be a surety for debt. Peter's telling you that. And you will even curse your children because of your covetous practices. Because those covetous practices bind you on earth. And it binds you. It, you will be considered bound in heaven. And and we know this going back, and I talked about this this morning, Samuel 8. You want to have a king who can exercise authority over you. This is what he's going to happen. He's going to take and take and take and take and take. And when you cry out and want that king to go away, I'm not going to hear you. I'm not going to help you. Because you've already abandoned me. Go to the gods you have chosen for yourself and cry unto them. So, this is where everybody finds themselves. Now, they're going to church and they think they love Jesus and everything. They haven't been doing what Jesus says. In fact, they've been doing the opposite of what Jesus said. The churches, a hundred years ago, took care of all the social welfare. They don't take care of the social welfare now. That's done by men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. You know, men like Obama, all these other governments that give away all these benefits and free health care and what have you. They're going to take away from your neighbor to provide you with those things. And of course they've been doing it now for years and it's getting to the point where they can't take enough. There isn't enough to take. They're into debt. The interest rates are climbing. Things are going along because the economy is pretty good right now, but everybody's operating on borrowed money. And so eventually there's going to be a downturn. The economy is doing pretty good now, but eventually somebody else will be president, somebody else will be prime minister, somebody else will do something, and it will come down. And so, as this pendulum swings one way, then the pendulum swings the other way. And the other way may be disastrous one of these days. But, so we we see Jesus instructing them, then charged he, his disciples, that they should tell no man... That he was Jesus the Christ. Jesus, he's not Jesus Christ. He's Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed. Jesus the Messiah. All the same thing. Jesus the King. And that time forth began Jesus to show unto the disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chiefs, priests, and scribes, and even be killed. And he raised again on the third day. Now, he didn't explain all that outrightly, but they're saying he began to tell them these things. He began to explain these things to them. And because, you know, later on Peter says, don't go to Jerusalem, etc. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, rebuke Jesus, try to warn Jesus, saying, but... It far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. And But Jesus turned and said, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, the adversary. That's what Satan is, an adversary. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, 
but the things that be of men. Now, this is a big thing. And everybody has to do this. Now, Peter, a little bit more so, because he was being put in a particular position of, and of course, that's why he denied Christ, as he hadn't learned to do that. But you get to do that every day with little things. You know, like uh, somebody who smokes, for instance. You know, somebody was telling me how much, uh, he was talking to somebody who drinks a couple beers a day. And he says, well, how much, and, and he buys them, like at a bar or something. And so I, I don't, I was shocked that like a beer at a bar could cost you five bucks. And I thought, wow. <laughs> That's huge. You know, I, I mean, I wouldn't know, because I never bought a beer in a bar. <laughs> Even as a boy. So, I was shocked, but he says, well, you add that up. How many days in a year? How many? And he says, over the last 10, 20 years, you could have bought a house for what you've been paying for those beers. At least you could have bought a house in, in Lakeview. Staggering. Same way with cigarettes. I don't know what they are now. $7 a pack? Some, some crazy amount like that. You have a bad habit like that. Forgo that habit. Fast from that habit. Take the money that you get from that habit and set it aside to do good for somebody. I mean, but actually do good. Now, that's that's another big question. Because this is where God comes in. How do you know what is good to do and what is not good to do? Are you going to decide what is good and evil? Now, I know a lot of people think, oh, well, I gave it to a poor person. You know, somebody was talking about somebody, they met somebody on the Internet that was very poor and in great need. If you met him on the internet, you haven't met them yet. (laughs) I don't know how many times I have heard stories of people on the internet with sob stories and need this and need that and people send them money and they don't. It's a lie. The money goes to waste. Now, I don't know this particular person, but you need to do due diligence to find out whether or not you're really doing them good, or whether you're giving them what they really need. Everybody doesn't need money who thinks they need money. They may need something else. So a person has to get to know who they're helping, find out what their real problem is, and help them. This is why Christ said to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Is this the only way to get to know one another? To, to know who really needs help. You know, this person always, you know, squeaky wheel gets the grease. But some people realize, wait a minute, this wheel isn't squeaking, but this wheel is the one that needs the grease. Because they're close to the work. They're close to each other. And so that's why Christ commanded that everybody sits down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. So what I'm describing to you is the way in which this government of God, this government that Christ is or Jesus is the Christ of the anointed king of how it works it works through this faith open charity it does not work through force so a lot of people hear me say that all the time and repeat it over and over again but how many ministers do you know that are saying no just love Jesus if you need anything you need any bread you need any health care you need free education you go to the men who exercise authority one over the other and you pray to them for that. The, the church is not in the business of taking care of people. The church is not in the business of providing education. The church is not in the business 
of health care. Well, it used to be, it used to be what the church did. This is why so many people are living the ch- uh, leaving the church. Why go? Well, some people need the emotional experience of a crowd singing together or, you know, standing up and kneeling down together or all belong to the same club together. But that's not why Christ came. That's not what Christ does. So if you're Catholic or Baptist or Methodist or Jehovah Witness and you you like to go to church because it makes you feel good, that has nothing to do with seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God, again, is a government. Bible mentions government over 700 times. It mentions religion five times. And four of the times that it mentions religion, it's talking about bad religion. Now, to be honest, many of the time that it's talking about government, it's talking about bad government. But the kingdom of God is a government. It's a form of government. It's a form of self-government that operates by charity instead of force. If you don't have a government, if you're not working towards a government that does not depend upon fealty but upon faith, does not depend upon force but upon charity, then you will not be free for very long. That's just the way it is. So what Christ was doing, what Moses was doing, if you get rid of all the smoke and mirrors that the modern church is telling you they were doing, you realize that these people had organized themselves into a free society with no hierarchy making new laws. So how did they decide laws? Well, basic laws are already there. Don't steal, don't cheat, don't bear false witness. So that takes out extortion, uh, takes out bribery, takes out all these things they're already crimes you know that, that you don't need to create a statute they already exist even the statutes of Moses are not statutes like we think of today the statutes of Moses were explanations of the other ten commandments of not you know if I went out and dug a pit along where I know a lot of people walk or drive or whatever I went out and dug that pit and then I left, and they could walk down that trail, and they might not see the pit because of the, where it's located. Maybe it'll be dark there, and, and they could fall in the pit and hurt themselves. And say they fell in the pit, and they did hurt themselves. Am I responsible? I dug a pit in a dangerous place. If I put up, I, I knew a contractor that built a balcony for a place that actually uh, rented out rooms to other people. And uh, it wasn't high up balcony, but it was a balcony around a deck. And somebody leaned on it, and it fell off the deck. <laughs> it just fell off the deck. Now, he didn't, if he was on the second floor, he would have died, probably. But, you know, he, he was just, it was just a low deck. But it was terribly built. Is he liable for that? If that guy had fallen and died, could he be held liable for that? Yeah, and that's what Moses is talking about. You know, when he has these statutes, you know, where you had to put a railing around your, your rooftop, because people used to go up on the rooftop. And uh, you had to put a railing around there because it wasn't safe without it. And what it, they're just talking about the dangers of negligent homicide, creating dangerous situations that causes the death of somebody else. You didn't intend to kill them, but you weren't careful. You know, like drunk driving. You got drunk and you went out and drove, 
and you ran into somebody, you should have known that you were drunk enough that you were drunk and you can't go drive because your ability to drive safely is impaired. You would be endangering other people. All those laws exist already, even if you do not pass a statute or write it down as a statute. It's called common sense. And people should have known. Now, that's the way all trials used to be in America. For the first hundred years, they didn't have all the statutes that we have today. I mean, the first statutes that were passed uh, in uh, the colonies, they said they passed these statutes, I think it was in 1619, Against known crimes. (laughs) Well, wait a minute. If you already knew they were crimes, why'd you have to make a statute? Because statutes help them run administrative courts. Also, it's they to some degrees, they're notices to the people that we consider this a breach of the law to create this danger. And so that's that's the kind of things. But that's all about government. They have all we have that already. So how do you adjudicate in the kingdom of God if you have a dispute? Well, that's what you do is you have a jury already because you have a ten family congregation. And you bring it before the elders and you say, what's fair in this situation? We've been arguing, me and this other guy, we've been arguing about this deal. And I think this is fair and he thinks this is fair. What do you guys think? And everybody hears both sides and they say, you know... I think he's got a point, and I think you've got a point. But what I think would be fair is that you do it this way. And everybody puts in their two cents with, and they resolve the issue, hopefully. Of course, that's going to require humility and forgiveness and willing to give a little bit in order to maintain the unity of society. So that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about buying... See, everybody at that particular time, most everybody in Judea were bound under the Roman government as well as under the government of Herod. And of course, there was no king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And so when he entered Jerusalem, he came in hailed as king. That's what they did. When he came in and they got the palms and everything, the people are saying, this is the king. They didn't like it, but he, and then you see him in the temple, government building, ordering people to do this and that and the other thing. You know, demanding that vessels stop being carried through the temple, whatever that meant. We've discussed it before. You know, there's a couple of different opinions, but basically the key thing is he's giving orders and people are obeying him. And he's even in the royal treasury giving orders. Why? Because he's the king. Everybody says, oh, the people rejected Jesus and didn't make him king. No, they did make him king. And some guys, the power elite of the time, wanted to make him unking. Wanted to kill him. Say that he was usurping the throne. Pilate didn't think he was usurping the throne. Pilate thought he was the rightful king. Pilate said to them, hey, this is your king. What shall I do with him? They say, crucify him. But he's your king. They say, crucify him. Now, they're saying crucify him. Pilate wouldn't have had to crucify him, except for the Pilate gave them the power of choice. He says, you guys, I got two guys here, both say they're the Christ, because that's what Jesus Barabbas, 
which means Jesus, son of the father, was saying that he was the Christ. He was the rightful king. And Jesus of Nazareth was also saying, or at least the people were saying, he actually wasn't saying it. It says, you know, that he knew that people had already hailed him as king. And he says, thou sayest it, that I am a king. And that's another long story we won't go into. But the fact is, is Pilate agreed. And Pilate wrote a document saying this is the king. He thought that they would want to crucify Jesus Barabbas because he was a man of violence. He was one of these kings that were going to rule with a sword. Christ is never going to rule with a sword like you would think of a steel sword where he goes and chops people's heads off. He is going to rule with a sword, but it's a different kind of sword. And I'm not going to tell you what that sword looks like. But it's a different kind of sword. It's a different kind of way. You're going to have to figure it out. And I'm going to depend upon the Holy Spirit showing you what that is. What Jesus is doing is preaching another kind of government. Peter is not the head of that. James was the head of the church. Almost everybody used to agree to that. Peter was very important, but... James was the head of the church, especially in Jerusalem. So what, what's all this stuff about Peter and the Pope? Well, that's just kind of made up. No, Peter never called himself Pope. None of the early bishops of Rome, which Peter supposedly became a bishop of Rome, none of them called themselves Pope. The first one that took the title, or didn't actually take the title of Pope, first one that had the word Pope referencing him, it was an inscription on his coffin. They referred to him as Pope. I can't remember what his name is right offhand, but Pope so-and-so. And it actually says Popa so-and-so and puts his name down. And it was inscribed on his coffin. And if you continue to look at the inscription, it was inscribed by his son, who's calling him Popa because that's his father buried in that grave. <laughs> that's the first guy that had the word Pope. Reference to him. The next guy who was offered the term, the head of, to be called Pope, refused the title. He said that anybody who took that name would be the Antichrist. So they gave it to Justin the Fat, and then later on it came back to him, uh, to that, it was actually a Pope Gregory, it came back to him after he died and could no longer voice an objection. But, there, there is no Pope. Now, there's a pope to the Catholic Church and they got to work out their own deal with that. But how do you know who is really a minister of the government of God? How do you know who's doing that? Well, that's a good question. How do you know? Because you're going to need to answer that. And the only way you're really going to know is personal revelation. Well, a lot of people don't get very strong personal revelations. They get a little still small voice revelations, you know, like, I I think it is. Well, that's the way you need to operate, that you think so-and-so is a minister of God, and so you're going to support that minister of God. And if you're sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, which we know Christ commanded, then you would support that minister of God some way. Or another. And then he would support his minister, etc., etc. That's the way the circulation in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ, should operate. Not going up to some top single authority. This is, this is important to understand in order to create that daily ministration of faith, hope, and charity. And so anyway, I've been working on a series 
that uh, I've already started submitting it to your local ministers. So if you're in a congregation, you can talk to them about what what we're sharing. I'm sharing little bits and pieces at a time, and we're going over it. We will eventually make audios and explain it, and we'll probably release it not on the regular radio shows, but we will release it so that people can see it's got lots of references. I could actually put ten times the references in it, and maybe when if we put it up in a web page at His Holy Church, I'm not sure where we'll put it, .org probably, uh, we'll include... And even more footnotes than we already have because those footnotes will be biblical references so you can see it together. The problem is that people don't understand what the early church was doing. There's somebody named Chad, I think Chad Dion or something on Facebook. And he was saying that the modern church is, you know, and its hierarchy and all the stuff is not right and you need to follow Christ and all this stuff. All, all true. All true. But... I've been trying to pin him down to what it looks like to follow Christ. He doesn't seem to know. I don't know. I can't, I can't pin him down. Cause it's very clear that if you were following Christ, you'd be doing something similar to the early church. Most people are not doing anything <laughs> very similar to the early church. One of the things, now one, now so we talked about forgiveness earlier this morning. We talked about repentance, thinking a different way. We talked about creating the system of charity through the tens, hundreds, of thousands that takes care of, uh, real religion, uh, faith, hope, and charity. I get people coming, that, talking to me the way they want to come here, you know, and I can, they're about to be homeless. And we talked about the homeless this morning. And so they're looking for someplace else to light. Well, one thing I know, in the kingdom of heaven, everybody's diligent. Everybody works. Well, everybody wants to come and join up when they're 65, 70 years old. I don't need more old people. I need young people. <laughs> I will take the old people on too. If if God shows me in my heart that we should take them on. But... There, you really have to begin to understand the nuances of the kingdom. So what's another nuance of the kingdom? And this is, this is really tricky, but really beneficial. And it's the Eucharist of Christ. And the Eucharist is not a little wafer. That's another huge distraction. It is never, Christ never handed out little wafers of bread. He did break bread and share it, but that again was a metaphor. But what it is, is Thanksgiving. That's what the word Eucharist actually means. Thanksgiving. What's Thanksgiving as opposed to just giving? It is thankful for the opportunity of giving. Remember, you can't be forgiven unless you forgive others. You won't give to those you haven't forgiven. You know, you will give grudgingly maybe, but you really don't give to those that you haven't forgiven. And so Thanksgiving means that you, when you give, you really give from the heart. Well, some uh, psychologists had done a study, Dr. Robert uh, Emons, I think, from the University of California, and, uh, and the University of California at Davis, and uh, Dr. Michael McCullough at the University of Miami. Uh, they, together they published a study in 2015 that talks about the actual physical improvements to your body that comes from practicing what they call is gratitude. 
You know, when we say thank you to somebody because they did something, do you really appreciate it? But they're saying that people that regularly thank those people who do things for them or, you know, maybe they just sold you something, they waited on you, you know, they, they brought you your ham and eggs at a restaurant, whatever it is, and people say thank you. Do you really mean it? When you say thank you, is energy flowing out of you like light out of a candle to that other person? You know, like the energy that flew, flowed out of Christ and healed that woman. Are you really extending gratitude? We should study the word gratitude in the Bible and find out if there's some nuances in there. I didn't set up anything, so I'm not going to start off on that sidetrack. But what I'm saying is that these guys, they took number of groups and they tested people they tested their health they tested their well-being their psychological health their physical health and then they set them out on a practice where they would be either very grateful for things or not so grateful for things and then they did surveys there's actually a couple of different studies along this line i just mentioned the one but people that are thankful even for the unfortunate things that happen to them, you know, that they're still thankful for. I mean, like if you smash your thumb, I mean, what's the first word that comes to your mind? <laughs> it's, it's probably not thanks. <laughs> and even if you did say thanks, the tone would not be real gratitude. It'd be sarcasm. Like, thanks, I needed that like another hole in the head. But the reality is, is that there is a pattern, a mental spiritual pattern that comes from generally practicing gratitude. When I was reading about the Essenes in ancient documents, ancient documents talking about the Essenes in the way in which, you know, these are documents written by the Romans about the Essenes. Uh, and the Romans often, you know, if they thought somebody was doing something wrong, the idea of torturing somebody to find out if they were telling the truth, that was perfectly okay. That was part of their standard uh, operating procedures, you know, of just weights and measures. You know, if you're not willing to take a little pain, if you buckle right away, then you probably weren't telling the truth to begin with. But anyway, so they would actually torture people. And abuse people and lock them up in jails to find out what the truth was. You know, the old rubber hose routine. And the Essenes, they say, would bless them and thank them even under torture. <laughs> I thought like, whoa, was that sarcasm? What's the deal there? So anyway, I'd love people to meditate upon that a little bit and think about that. If... You can't be forgiven unless you forgive others. If God won't give to you unless you give to others, uh, God will not hear your cries unless you hear the cries of others. Then what is what are you not going to get from God if you aren't walking in gratefulness? I mean, like, you know, there's a... A lot of hard things that people have to do. I've made my living and raised my family with manual labor. You know, I could have made a lot more money if I wasn't a minister of the church 
And I, because we, I'm not supported by the people who listen and the people who gather. Uh, most all the money that has come in from outside the, you know, our congregational order goes back to the people. Uh, probably more than all the money that comes in goes back to the people to help do what the job of the church is, which is to take care of the needy of the society through faith, hope, and charity. Well, I can't be doing it if I'm getting fat on what people send. So that money has got to go back. And one of the ways to govern that is they don't all send it to me and then I trickle it down to everybody else. They send it to their local minister and he trickles it up to me, (laughs) maybe, (laughs) if he chooses, because he doesn't have to. But then... I take the extra money that I don't need because we're still self-sustaining here and I, I have it available to help out the needy in these other places. And, you know, like uh, we, we may create a fund in some of the other countries because we don't want them sending money to this country and then we have to send it back to that country when we there's a need. And chances are there'll be more of a need in that country sooner than it will be here. I don't know. But the point is, is we want funds wherever people are gathering. And this is what you see with the early church with Paul and Barnabas, is that they're moving funds from one nation to another. And Paul often was in on that. There were others in on it. Clearly, Paul talks about others coming from Corinth and going to Jerusalem and some coming from Galatia to go Galatia to go to Corinth and, and the same thing. They were moving funds around and they were responsible for doing that because there were dearths and famines in the land. Think about that now. If that's the way the church was operating, there was lots of welfare out there in the world of the of the Romans and the Corinth and of Ephesus and all this stuff. But the Christians were doing it only by charitable offerings. They were not doing it with a central treasury. They were not doing it by forced offerings. They were doing it only by a network of charity. And they thrived during persecution and during the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Do you think that will happen with you if the system of checks and balances and and debt and all this stuff comes to a screeching halt in the world where you live. Now, I don't want you to seek the kingdom out of fear. I want you to seek the kingdom out of faith. But think about it. What form of government makes the people stronger? It's the government that puts the responsibility back in the hands of the people. And you should be grateful for that responsibility that comes back to you. Because if you are grateful for the burden of that, that light burden of responsibility that Christ talks about, my burden is light, then you will receive not only spiritual but physical blessings. Maybe I should say not only physical blessings but spiritual blessings because which is more important, physical or spiritual? Well, the spirit cometh first. So the spiritual is very important because it sets the pattern. So... If you want your rights back, is another way, I've said this a hundred times, a thousand times, if you want your rights back, you have to take your responsibilities back. That's what Moses was teaching. That's what Jesus Christ was teaching. That's what Abraham was teaching. That's what his, the altars of Abraham were all about. He was showing the people how to set up systems 
operating by charity that took care of the needy of their society, which allowed Abraham to muster an army to destroy an army built by five kings that was taking one city-state after another. They created that army overnight. Because they were organizing themselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands in a network of charity, not a network of force. And they were grateful for the opportunity of doing it by charity. And tyrants could not rise up and enemy could not come and invade and destroy them. Now, if you magnify that with the number of people on the earth today, because there are you know, we have billions and billions of people on the earth. I mean, the numbers are staggering. Never before in history, actually in most of history, you're not going to have as many people on the earth over a long period of man's history as we do now in a single moment. That is just staggering. Unfortunately, the gates of hell are open. <laughs> and hell is empty and all the demons are here. There's a lot of evil, wicked people out there. Now we hope they all repent. We hope they turn around. We hope they learn to seek the kingdom of God. And I've mentioned a few crazy things in the news going on out there in the news that really we don't want to have any part of. We don't want to have uh, uh, any connection to. We want to have that connection to the keys of the kingdom that sets us free. We don't want to be bound in these systems. Well, then you have to create the alternative system, the alternative daily ministration, the alternative network. And that's what John the Baptist was doing. That's what Jesus was talking about. And that's what the early church implemented. First, you know, 3,000 one day, 2,000 another. And again, those, those numbers, 3,000 and 2,000, those would be heads of households. So you're actually talking 20,000, 30,000 people, maybe more, in a couple of days. And then over a period of time, even thousands more. Which And I'm sure many came and went. And as a matter of fact, I can guarantee it because I've read read the ancient texts. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the fragments that talk about the history of that time. And that was a big debate. When somebody came into that network, because it was a free assemblies, they, that's, they were all free assemblies based on charity, but it was the buddy systems times 10. Many people came in, and then when going got rough, they left and went and ate things offered to the at the other welfare system of the world. And people will come and go like that. Hopefully, they'll eventually repent completely and not go back. And stand in faith to be steadfast, as it says in the New Testament. But until they do, how many times do you receive them back? Jesus talked about that. The early church talked about that. Not, not the Catholic church. That didn't exist yet. That wasn't going to be around for quite some time. Even, even the Catholic church really wasn't off the ground. It was in a few high courts, but it really didn't get off the ground. A lot of what you see, the activities of the church back there and 100 and 300 A.D. and 400 A.D. That's not the Catholic Church. That's actually the church. Now, the Catholic Church claimed all that, but I can show you in the writings and the letters that have survived from the Pope to people. And, you know, we talked about it in our show on Iceland and stuff, that there was a church already there. And when Augustine came, you know, was talking about 
Canterbury and all that. There was a church already there, and they talked about how well we gotta, we don't want to upset them. They'll drive us out, so we just gotta watch and wait. And then they worked their their way in and began to entice people away. And then, of course, if you read our free church report, which is free online, you could see a picture of Lady Godiva on the cover, and uh, and she really expressed what the downfall of the church was all about. And she stood against it in a way that almost nobody else has before or since. You know, when I say before or since, around that time at least, I'm not going to go all the way back to the time of Christ because they were actually standing against those changes that were creeping in, even unto death. She didn't have to face that, but she was willing to take her wealth and set it aside to be a minister to the people. And she never took off her clothes. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to our website at preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org and look up Lady Godiva and find out what's on the Free Church Report. Until then, all I can say is peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. I see all all kinds of people joined to listen to the show today. So anyway, um, we'll see you then. Uh, join us on the network and we'll tell you a lot more. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.